Welcome back to the Judson Podcast. We are a diverse group of friends who get together to talk about faith, culture, and all the things that interest us. For today's topic, we're going to talk about the challenges of building a multicultural church. And to talk about this topic with us, we have our special guest of the week, Pastor Philip Beatty. He is uh, Jenny's old pastor of Hartford City Church. And if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you've definitely heard Jenny rave about this church. So we're excited to talk to Philip today. It is true. But before we begin, of course, we have our question of the week. And because we're talking about multiculturalism, I thought a fun question would be, what is the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? And let me preface that by saying, uh, you know, we approach this topic kind of tongue in cheek. Like we realize something is weird to somebody else, right? We realize this question rightfully should be subjective. And it's only inappropriate when someone privileges their own experience over others. So uh, I think this is fun to talk about just, you know, what are we used to and what are we not used to? So I'll start. Hi, everyone. Jenny here. The first and only time that I've had chicken's feet, it was actually homemade chicken's feet served not, I think, at the right temperature. I think it was cooked, but then it ended up being served cold. And I don't know that it was a good example of delicious chicken's feet to begin with. So Was it Chinese style? It was at your church, Scott. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, of course, as... Uh, growing up in as an American white person, I've only had chicken that wasn't recognizable as being part of a chicken. And chicken's feet is just so shocking because it's definitely part of a chicken. And so... It's definitely a foot. Yes. <laughs> it's the definitely claws. part of a chicken and it's definitely the foot part of a chicken. But not, not a great experience because it was kind of cold. <laughs> But I had to eat it because I challenged myself to eat the weirdest possible things. I want to eat everything in the world that's edible before I die. <laughs> wow. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate your support. This is David. Um, I would say, I don't know if it counts as weird, but any food that's slimy is weird to me, like, um, Brussels sprouts when they're kind of like boiled or like okra. <laughs> you definitely messed up Brussels sprouts if they taste slimy. I've never <laughs> had slimy Brussels sprouts. I've only had them roasted, so we said slimy. I'm like, really? Slimy? <laughs> yeah, I think growing up we kind of had them sometimes just like broiled or whatever. They're boiled, yeah. <laughs> but I've had them roasted and they're less bad, but... They're bearable, but I still don't like them roasted either. But anyway, slimy foods like okra or Brussels sprouts is probably the weirdest food. I guess it's common, but to me, it, I guess it just tastes weird. I like that that was also the first food that you said when you said slimy. Like the first yeah. food that came to <laughs> mind for slimy was Brussels sprouts. I remember it. I Something remember that it. people I didn't have them as like small and hard. <laughs> I didn't have them. I guess it depends on how you cook it. Yeah. No, I agree with you, David. I'm like a texture person, so I don't like slimy either. That's why I like my least favorite fruit is bananas. It's like too slimy. Mm. What? Yeah. I like bananas, but then while I'm eating them sometimes, I'm like, oh, this is so slimy. Really? I mean, I guess you got to get it early, but... 
Uh, hey guys, this is this is Scott. I get I think one of the weirdest things that that was weird for me for my experience was when I was first introduced to European teas. The idea of drinking tea with milk and sugar, like a hot tea with sugar, to me that was like crazy. I was like, who are mm -hmm. these people? Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> this is sacrilege. Mm -hmm. Then when I realized that people actually do this as like their regular way of drinking tea, I was pretty shocked. Scott's point goes back to mine about Americans and their sugar addiction. <laughs> They'll mm. add sugar to anything. It's true. It's ironic you say that because, Jenny, you were either the first or second person I've ever seen add sugar to their tea. Oh, no. Really? <laughs> and I was like, whoa, what a weirdo. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Do I get to go too? <laughs> Yes, please. Please. <laughs> First of all, Jenny, I've eaten a lot of weird things. I've been in a lot of different cultures, a lot of places around the world. And so I've got some that you should put on your list. So I'm writing it down. In Alaska, when mm -hmm. I was uh, up there with the Yupik Native Nations, I had muttuk, which is raw whale meat and blubber. It looks like a little square black piece and a little square white piece. Wow. And that was the hardest thing to chew. But I had reindeer jerky, which was amazing. And I had bearded seal meat with like teriyaki sauce that was really, really good. But of course, people wow. hate it when you say that you ate seal. It's, it doesn't sound very good. But, but I will wow. give you guys, my name is Pastor Phil, and I will give you one of the strangest things that I've ever eaten. I was on a ministry trip in Honduras, and we were staying right at the border between Honduras and Guatemala. And we were in a small town in a small restaurant where they cooked everything over an open fire. And uh, we were having a very nice meal. And the people that were hosting us really wanted me to try one of their specialties, but they wouldn't tell me what it was. So they brought out this plate and it was these little round gold medallions is the best way I could say it. And you guys made me think of it because they were slimy. It was like, like, you know, that, that cranberry jelly that you get out of the can and you slice it up. Mm -hmm. It kind of looked like that. So it was this light golden brown and it had this garlic butter sauce on it. So it tasted amazing. Um, it was seasoned amazing. It was a little slimy to bite. And after I ate it, I asked them what it was. And they said in Spanish that it was huevos de toro. And I was like, huh, the eggs of a bull. Oh, well, no. I know a bull doesn't uh -oh. have eggs. Wait a minute. <laughs> and they just laughed and thought that it was uh, that it was amazing. So even though it is an honored delicacy in their culture, they also told me they think it's strange to eat that. So I guess that's the strangest thing that I've ever eaten is the uh, <clears throat> eggs of a bull. So what can the texture be compared to? Like what kind of meat? What cut of meat? Uh, like a like maybe like a pate, you know, like a liver pate or oh. something. Just very <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, more honestly, more more fatty and gelatin than like meat. Which oh. if you don't think too hard about the anatomy, maybe that kind of makes sense. I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so you knew before? So you knew after you knew after they wouldn't tell me till I took a bite. I had to take a bite. That should have been your warning. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. It was a warning, but not one that I heeded because Jenny, I'm like you. I want to try everything. Like literally, yeah. I am the person that will almost try every single food uh, that's being offered or available, especially in another culture. I love it. Cool. That was amazing. So I definitely need to try some of these foods. Except the slimy Brussels sprouts. Um, so. Wait, what? So you want to try the huevos de toro, but not Brussels sprouts? <laughs> right, right. Well, David, it doesn't. <laughs> slimy Brussels sprouts? I love Brussels sprouts, but the slimy ones. The huevos are a little larger than Brussels sprouts, if you're looking for a comparison there. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound so good.
So we've had just a few guests on our podcast in the past, but um, I thought of my pastor from when I lived in Hartford, Connecticut, Pastor Phil, just because I helped a little bit with just a little bit with him planting a church in Hartford. And I just thought, boy, this has been a crazy year if you're a pastor. It's been a crazy year for everybody, but we want to kind of talk about what it's been like in his experience specifically. But before we get to that, I'll just give a little bit of background and then Phil, you can fill in the details. I think in 2000, when did you plant Hartford City Church? I'm already asking you to fill in the details. Um, 2015. 2015 was when Pastor Phil moved from a church in Manchester, Connecticut, to planting a church in Hartford, Connecticut. And I used to attend the Saturday night services of this church in Manchester. And if you're not familiar with Manchester, Connecticut, the demographics of that town, I just Googled them, so hopefully this is right, is around 83% white, 8% African-American, um, Hispanic Latino is 6.5%. And Hartford is very different demographically. Hartford is white, 31%. Black or African American, 38%. So more than white. Hispanic or Latino, 44%. So I just wanted to ask you, Phil, I know that you've been on mission trips to a bunch of different places, but I'm also wondering... Uh, what made you decide to move from Manchester into Hartford, to move your ministry from Manchester into Hartford? And you would say it's like a pretty suburban setting into a pretty urban setting? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And now Manchester, when you say suburban, it's it's not like the really rich suburbs of Connecticut. So there are different levels economically. So the phrase might be a first ring suburb, or there's different phrases to indicate suburbs that aren't as affluent as others. So East Hartford and Manchester would definitely be on the more affordable side for people moving into. So um, you uh. would see people moving out of Hartford or places like that into an affordable place. Manchester was definitely uh, more affordable. So it, it made it a little unique um, in that sense. Um, the school districts in Manchester, I worked as a youth pastor for 13 years, are much more diverse than the overall demographics that Jenny pointed out so well. Uh, so the, the number of white students would be less in the school systems. So you, you feel like if you have kids and you're participating in that, again, there's more diversity than Glastonbury or Avon or the, the Gold Coast of Connecticut, but certainly much less diversity um, than Hartford. Yeah, there are towns in Connecticut where the average household income is, I think, 110 or 120K. That's right. Average. Right. <laughs> And then in Hartford, it's what, 36,000? Yeah. Like between the 35 and 40? I mean, that's the disparity in, in a, such a small mm -hmm. state, are those incomes right there. Mm -hmm. So um, Hartford had kind of been on my mind for a while. I'd worked with other churches in Hartford. I had developed relationships with churches in Hartford. So I was really drawn to what God was already doing in the city uh, through some of the churches that I knew and, and had partnered with over the years. And then the idea of wanting to do something you know, that was multicultural, something that we don't see a lot of. And I know you guys have talked about this before on your podcast as well. So a city with the demographics that Jenny mentioned seemed like it would be a good place to, you know, attempt the idea of trying to build a truly diverse multicultural church. And so it was kind of that challenge of it that drew me to Hartford. Um, but really one of the biggest things was the relationships I already had. I, I didn't feel like 
I wanted to go into a new city where I had never lived, where I didn't know anything, where I didn't know anybody, and kind of what we call in the business parachute plant a church. I wanted to go into a place that I already knew and try to work with people that I already had uh, relationships with there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. Were there any peers or mentors that you spoke with or books that you read that had an, an influence on you in that direction? Yeah, there was. Um, our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, has a pretty robust church planting program. And uh, the director of church planting for our conference, the East Coast Conference, um, I had known um, his son and my son were good friends. Um, they kind of went to the same youth group, ran in the same circles. And uh, so he and I really began to talk and he was someone who began to talk to me about the idea of church planting and, you know, and, and what it might look like. Um, originally, my call was very specifically to Hartford. And um, one of the pastors in Hartford is Marshall Montz, who pastors the Citadel of Love. He's an African-American pastor that I've known for years. I call him my pastor and my mentor. And he was definitely one of the first people that I talked to about this idea and talked through all of the questions and concerns that I had. And he really affirmed, uh, you know, my calling. And at the end of our conversations, I said, listen, I won't do this unless I have your blessing. I feel like that's important to me. And he told me that Ooh. I definitely had his blessing and and his love and his support. And I, I still have it to this day. So uh, he was definitely a big influence. Mm. Cool. That's yeah, cool. that's very cool. Do you feel like any of your international ministry trips have also informed your ministry in Hartford? Yes, most definitely. Um, in Hartford, kind of the, the diversity that you described is really segregated within Hartford. So everything on the north side of the city is primarily African-American or uh, Caribbean-American. Everything on the south side is primarily Hispanic, with the most of that being Puerto Rican. So because I have had long-term friendships and partnerships in both Mexico and Central America, I felt like I you know, knew the culture. I know the language a little bit. I felt kind of at home. So that kind of led me within Hartford to a specific place. Um, but there's also something about visiting other cultures. I think it's very hard for anyone uh, to be a multicultural person if you haven't actually lived in another culture. I mean, if you haven't walked the streets or eaten the food or sat in the homes of people that are different, different religion, different race, different ethnicity, I, I feel that that gives you a, a greater understanding, a greater ability you know, to navigate uh, within uh, different cultures. So um, I thought, you know, that would help me in being able to try to, you know, be able to relate to lots of different kinds of people. You have to eat yeah. the eggs of the bowl. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that's that's exactly, exactly what you have to do. So, and I really enjoy, I just am that kind of person that is, that is endlessly curious and, and loves. So I love to learn about all new things and different things. And I, I really am genuinely curious about, you know, all cultures and, and, um, you know, and I enjoy it. I mean, it's something that I enjoy. I'm not a person who feels like once I'm not at home or with my, my own food that I'm thrown off. I, I tend to crave more of the, the adventure and the, and the frontier kind of experience. Maybe that's my Colorado upbringing coming into play or something. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were laying the groundwork for Hartford City Church, envisioning like a multicultural church in the city, what was the image that you had in your mind? Like, how would you define a multicultural church? Mm, that's a great question, Scott. And, and and just to kind of, you know, jump the gun, definitely what happened was not exactly what I envisioned. Um, mm. What I envisioned was a place where where people from different cultural backgrounds, and I very specifically thought about 
uh, different races. You know, this was even, you know, right before we really accelerated the conversation of race in America. I mean, if you think about it, we were just, uh, you know, one year ahead of Donald Trump being elected for the first time. So we almost had no idea what was going to happen as far as yeah. racial issues and relations in this country. And so, you know, but I definitely had that as a part of my vision that would be a place where people would feel welcome. Um, part of my vision was to really reach the unchurched. I felt like in every culture, there are people that don't go to church. Um, so I knew that there were a lot of great churches from the African-American tradition, from the Spanish tradition, Hispanic tradition, Latino tradition. But again, most churches are reaching the people that they already reach with um, with kind of language and methodology that doesn't really relate to younger generations or people that go outside of church. I, I think we all share the, those same things. As I talk with pastors, we all want to see people that don't go to church come to church, and we want to see young people not leave the church. So I definitely had that. So it was two things. It was not just multicultural, but multicultural in a way that would really appeal, hopefully, uh, to people that don't go to church. But what I found mm. was that that's really, really hard, to be honest with you. It's really, really mm. hard because most of the people you get uh, who come to your church are people that are disgruntled with other churches. Uh, so they're not unchurched people. They're people that have some church baggage. And they come in because they want. They also want to see something the way they want to see it. And And a lot of times it's hard creatively to envision what you could do differently when all you know is the traditional forms of your church. And then add to that, each culture has a different form that they're used to historically. And so you're not only trying to break free from historical forms, you're trying to merge different ideas together. And it just is, it's been very, very challenging. Mm. Can you give an example of that? It sounds like you might be thinking specifically about the flow of Sunday morning service, where that would come into play. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's certain, um, you know, experiences that people come to associate with church, you know, whatever culture they're from. And sometimes even people that don't go to church they still, in an ironic way, want it to feel like church in some way. You know, yeah. they want it to be that they want some touch points to their culture that they understand. So, in the non-white church tradition, sometimes you know having a, an altar call or people coming forward or praying for people after service is much more common, um, and and people are used to that. So that was something that I felt like I wanted to incorporate. Um, you know, denominationally, you might say it's the more charismatic or Pentecostal side of church or or, uh, you know, spirit-filled churches versus the more liturgical uh, churches. Uh, so, um, again, you got people coming from different backgrounds, and, and that would be one of their expectations. Yeah, that would be one example, the flow of the service. Um, obviously, music is a big example because everyone argues about that, but you have very different styles of music and very different expectations of music. And um, one of the challenges is that you can have a, a multicultural worship team uh, but not everybody on that team is going to know how to play the music style of another culture. So, for instance, yeah. we could have some people on our team that that grew up on gospel music and understood the rhythms and cadences of gospel music. But you're trying to work with other people on the same team who don't have any, you know, ability in that. And in a small church, you, you get who you get, you know, and the level of skill among our musicians was kind of all over the place as well. So while people who weren't a part of it wanted to see us do more diverse songs, we kind of had to default to what are we able to do given the talent level, you know, of who we have at the moment. So that was also, you know, a struggle in the beginning to try to figure some of those things out. Mm. I feel like a lot of the things that we're talking about and a lot of my experience of Hartford City Church was very 
communal. I I always felt like we were all a part of <laughs> that we're we are all doing church together. It's it was very much not an individual experience. Like you don't go to Hartford City Church to be just you and God. Um, like what you were talking about with the um, like you would often have an object lesson. Like I remember there was one time where we all got a seed and then we planted it and we wrote note cards and we stuck them up on a Christmas tree. Um, but we also ate together after service and we're talking also about like altar calls where people are, are coming together. How has that been during the time of a uh, global pandemic when, you know, we have to be six feet apart. We're not supposed to touch each other. How has the pandemic affected you this year? So if the question is, has it been hard? The answer is yes, very. Yeah. Um, you don't, you know, I mean, you don't, you know, the, you know, the culture, you know, the, you know, the, the, the culture of, you know, the largely uh, Puerto Rican community, you don't get together at all without hugging, you know, without being close mm -hmm. and expressing affection and warmth. And, um, and that's been extremely hard. I think a lot of people, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we're really missing that. Um, part of our discernment was we don't want to come back together and, and not be able to do anything. Like we were really trying to figure that out, you know, like it would be, would it be more of a loss to come back too quickly, you know, and be so restricted versus waiting until, you know, maybe we were in, you know, phase 1B or phase 2 or whatever. We kind of waited until September to meet back in person. But when we did meet, you know, we, we had the chairs six feet apart and people wore masks and it really did become difficult to do ministry time or prayer time after service because you didn't really want people leaving their seat, you know, and coming into a different area. You wanted people to respond from their seats, which is much more difficult to do. It's not the same as talking to someone, you know, having that kind of relational intimacy of, you know, being able to pray together and share requests together. So um, we tried to do it one Sunday where we said, if you want to have prayer with someone, come forward, but please keep your distance and keep your mask on. And not one person came, and I, and I don't blame them. It just, it just, it, yeah. it was too hard. It was too much of an emotional thing to get over. Uh, yeah, that's that's been very very difficult. Um, the other thing, when you said communal, I thought about how a different experience from the traditionally white church is that people are more expressive vocally and physically during sermons and during church, and so to preach to a room full of masks is very difficult for a multicultural church pastor because you're used to the responses and the expressions and the, and the interactions that you have. So, um, you know, that's been a challenge, you know, for me personally, just still trying to feel that connection, you know, even through our traditional forms of, you know, being able to, um, you know, see each other's faces and, and whatnot. And then to your point, Jenny, in the pandemic, you just feel like you can't stick around. Like it's just not right to just, Unless it's a small group of people. So, you know, we, we've tried to focus on that, to be honest with you. Uh, we've tried to um, – uh, there's a great new place called Parkville Market. Jenny, have you been there in Hartford yet when you come to visit? I have not. It's I a, should. It's a mini Quincy market for Hartford. It's like the, all these different food places from all different cultures in this big hall. So uh, we'll take a limited number of people, you know, our family and two others, and we'll try to, you know, go out to eat after church. You know what I mean? Or, or oh. you know, trying to do takeout with people. But yeah, those days of all being together in one hall and this big kind of family dinner, we just can't do that. We can't do it at all. So, you know, we have to we have to figure out new ways to have fellowship and connection. Mm. So, like, have you been doing live stream church over over Zoom? Yeah. So what we started off doing was um, we did like a Facebook Live, Instagram Live to start with, 
And man, if anybody looks at those first services we did when the shutdown happened, uh, you would laugh because we were really trying to figure everything out. I mean, it really was like, oh, we're no. not sure what's going on. I tried to like, like get three or four people together in one room to sing, but on the video screen, but it looks like we're all close together and people were freaking out. Like, how could you be that close together? We're like, Oh, we're sorry. And so we, uh, <laughs> so what we ended up doing was a virtual church. So, um, we ended up, uh, pre-recording my message. Uh, we have a great technical guy on the worship arts ministry who would uh, have everyone record individually. So our worship videos kind of look like this Zoom video. I don't know if you guys have seen any of those where you put the different pieces together. And he did a fantastic job of mixing them. I mean, really high quality, way, way more quality than the size of our church warrants. And so we had these just kind of virtual churches that were pre-recorded, put together on Saturday, you know, ready to go Sunday morning and, and people could watch them whenever they wanted to. So we, we ran that through the summer. We did a couple of outdoor services to try to connect in person uh, when the weather was good, when it permitted. Then in September, second or third week of September, we started meeting in person again, but continued to live stream. And since that time, we're about half and half. 50% of our people come in person, 50% choose to stay at home and watch live on the live stream. Mm. It must be hard also for members of your church who don't have access to technology. Yes, yes. And that's, that's well, you're, you're getting into one of my, you know, pet peeves, <laughs> just to be honest and real, I probably shouldn't have the pet peeve, but I do, is that when people talk about church planting, you go to these conferences and you have people talking about multicultural churches, most of this, you know, you can have a church that's different colors, if I can say it that way, but if everyone has an iPhone, you don't have economic diversity. Mm. And the bigger challenge is economic diversity. At Hartford City Church, we have economic diversity. I mean, we have, we have doctors and we have nurses and we have uh, small business owners and we have people with no jobs and people on unemployment and people on assistance and, and people that are recovering addicts, you know, along with students, you know, and, um, and so that does become a challenge because these ideas that get presented to you as a church, it's like, well, first of all, what is the reading level of all of my people? So if it's a printed material, what is the reading level? Second, what is the technology level? What are my people able to access, you know, on a government-issued phone? That's not a smartphone. You know, how do I stay connected with them? You know, not everyone has a computer. You know, not everyone has reliable Wi-Fi. Um, and on the other end, you have people that are on Zoom all week and they're fatigued. You know, they're fatigued by being it. So, you know, if you can't meet in person, they're like, I'd rather just sleep and, you know, have a bagel and some hot tea with sugar in it as, as we do Scott over here. We put some sugar <laughs> in that hot tea yeah. and just uh, snuggle up at home. So... Um, how have we addressed that? I've really challenged our leaders and myself to call people individually and stay connected with them. So I have four or five people that uh, just aren't able to get on Zoom. And so I have to call them uh, once, twice a week. I have to just do the personal stuff. It's not about coming to church for them right now. It's about me as their pastor, just staying in touch with them on the phone or through text. That That's what it is, honestly. Hmm. Yeah, we don't often think of multiculturalism being tied to digital literacy, but I think definitely with the pandemic, we've discovered that's a huge part of it. So another thing that happened in the headlines that churches have had to deal with is, of course, all the protests of the past year, protests over police brutality, the fallout over this election season. Has there been any issues in your church regarding that divisive atmosphere? And if so, how have you tried to address it? Yes, that is a, a very big question. I'm just starting to Starbucks right here. For that question, I need Starbucks. By the way, my, my daughter, Scarlett, uh, do you remember Scarlett, Jenny? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's uh, 16, going on 17 now. She got her first job at Starbucks, and the benefits that she gets working at Starbucks, I'm enjoying more than she is. That's been nice. Um, Oh, man, Scott. Um, So when we planted, uh, first preview service was July, you know, first Sunday of July 2015. Started going weekly in October of 2015. One year later, Trump gets elected president. We had a range of people in our church on the political scale and on the theological scale. Let, let me insert this too. This is good. I want to not forget to put this in. Pastor Rich Velotis, pastors uh, New Life Church in Queens. It's the church that Emotionally Healthy Material came mm-hmm. out of. Uh, Rich yeah. Velotis is a phenomenal, phenomenal pastor, like one of my mentors on Twitter, to be honest with you. And he had this quote that I thought is so descriptive of my experience. He said, let us not romanticize the multicultural church. Because a multicultural church is multi-theological, multi-political, and multi-difficult. And truer mm. words were never spoken. So, um, multi-political. So, we had people that supported Trump. Anytime I would even say the name of Trump in a sermon, I would get people upset. They would just be like, you know, how are you criticizing? You know, they were just on that side of it. Um, the Black Lives Matters protest had actually started, you know. And so, I felt like I was getting criticized for speaking anything that might be perceived to be negative about Trump. And then I was criticized for not wearing a Black Lives Matters t-shirt myself. And at that time, still coming from a predominantly white context, I was still learning how to navigate those those waters. I was learning what it meant to be prophetic, uh, but also to try to pastor people, you know, from very different political views. And and to be honest, I didn't always do it well. I made a ton of mistakes, uh, mostly because I, I was afraid I didn't know what to do. Um, sometimes I would get all fired up myself and, and, mm. and I, w- I might say things without fully thinking it through and fully developing what I needed to do. So a couple of the things I did personally is I realized that I needed mentors who were not white. Uh, so I talked to my pastor, Pastor Mons. Um, there's another church that, uh, we work very closely with, uh, Bishop Joel Cruz became like a spiritual father to me. I started going to conferences. In fact, in New York City, the New City Conference, is one of the best ones that I've ever been to. And 85% of the speakers are not white. Started reading books by non-white authors. I really just tried to immerse myself in a whole different way of discipleship and thinking for myself. And as I did that, I invited the church, you know, to come along with me. Mm. I was gonna say, what sort of methods came out of of that? Yeah, because I imagine no matter what level of enrichment a leader, a pastor is able to um, immerse himself with, you know, you're still going to have to deal with difficult people <laughs> and uh, people who don't want their minds changed. <laughs> yeah, I don't see any easy way to deal with that. No, there's there's not. Um, I guess you could say fortunately or unfortunately, as things progressed, as things became more and more pronounced and things got worse and worse, it was kind of an eye-opening experience, uh, to be honest with you. Um, I find mm-hmm. that most of the people that were still in our church by that point we're not the people who wanted to entrench themselves, but people who were more open, you know, to hearing something else. I'm talking about white people primarily. To be honest with you, most of the white Trump supporters, you know, left the church in the first couple of years. And not just because of political, but to be honest with you, these were people who had never worshiped together with people of color in their life. And it was too uncomfortable for them. I just have to say it that way. I, I mean, it's honestly yeah. true. And again, you know, I wouldn't have looked at them and thought, oh, you know, they're racist. And I mean, they were at our church, but some people tried it and realized, you know what? I, I can't, this is not comfortable for me. You know, I, I want to retreat to something that's 
that's more comfortable for me. All right, so here's another layer. Another layer is if you have people in the military, they tended to be more Trump supporters and more conservative in their political views, even though, so we had uh, two Hispanic people that were in the military and one African-American guy that was in the military. They were actually Trump supporters. They were actually more conservative on many of the social issues. And as you can imagine, a little more law and order than your average uh, churchgoer. So you can't just paint everyone with the same brush. You know, when you have a real multi whatever church, you really have people that don't fit into nice and neat categories. So they'll, they'll be one way on this. There'll be another way here. And so you get a mixture, you know, and, and it's beautiful. Obviously it's beautiful. It's a beautiful mixture when it comes together, but not everybody's going to think the same just because they have a certain skin color or just because they come uh, from a certain cultural background, you know, that we have a lot of uniqueness in our church. So mm-hmm. that was uh, difficult to handle. Uh, going back to your question, David, about methods. So what I did was I tried to pick books that I had read that I thought would be accessible to most of the congregation. And I would I put together a, a book list, a reading list, and invited people in my church to really study it. Um, you would have people reach out to you individually that would say, hey, I want to do some of this work. What would you recommend? And I would try to recommend books to them as well. InterVarsity Press came out with a great reading list for racial righteousness, I think, or racial justice after uh, George Floyd's murder. And that was helpful as well. That was helpful to be able to share that with other people. So basically what methods came out of is I tried to find resources that I felt like could speak to people. I like to try to match people with a resource that I think that they won't be as defensive against. Mm. So for instance, um, Jamar Tisby wrote this book called The Color of Compromise. You know, I don't know if you guys have read it, but it's a fantastic book. Yes. Jamar Tisby Mm -hmm. is from the Reformed Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. So while I am no longer Reformed, even though I was, I I have a lot of Reformed people. And so I felt like if I had a white Reformed pastor who was just all upset about the lawlessness and the riots and didn't understand this, I would suggest that book to them because he came from their same theological background. You know, I felt like there could be a respect for him because of the seminary he went to, you know, that might allow them to listen. How did that go? Because I know some people... Well, one person I know from the forum kind of said that Jamar was a race baiter. Yeah. But I, I see what you're saying. It's like you look for the same background as a connection point. No, no I am. Like you, it didn't go really well. Um, one, one person, you know, their initial response was, I only have time to read the Bible. So I'm not, I wasn't. Oh. And this is a pastor. <laughs> Wait, but they're reformed? So what about Calvin? <laughs> so what I did was I, I would try to find an article that I could like you know, text him, slide him a text of an article or something. Um, so that didn't go really well. I, I see your point, And I feel like for most people, if they started to read it, they would probably have a similar uh, response uh, because of the negativity. I do have one friend, another pastor who's white, and he agreed to read it. And uh, he hasn't talked to me more about it other than that. He said, I'm processing it and I'm thinking about it and I'm really trying to understand. So I don't know any more specific than that, but I feel like maybe there's a there's a bit of an, a, an open door there. Mm-hmm. But, but guys, there's so many issues, right? You know, mass incarceration yeah. is this huge issue that nobody, nobody, kn- I didn't know about. I, I didn't know about the history of, of mass incarceration and injustices. So I have a book about that I try to recommend to people. Um, Which one is that? That book is called Rethinking Incarceration by Dominique Gilliard. He's part of the Evangelical Covenant Church, and it's on InterVarsity Press's list as well. Unsettling Truths by Mark Charles and Sun Chan Ra. And Sun Chan Ra is another uh, professor at our seminary in Chicago, who, by the way, 
has been a mentor to me in multiculturalism. He used to uh, pastor in Boston. He's written a lot of books, but this latest is about um, the history of the doctrine of discovery. And Mark Charles, of course, is a native theologian, a Navajo man. And that book is just phenomenal about understanding the doctrine of discovery and the history of racism from colonial days up until the present. So I did uh, four church planting classes underneath Professor Sunchan Ra. And I'm telling you, I I learned a lot. I I learned a ton from that man, uh, both from the books and also experientially. One of our classes, we actually toured historical sites in Colorado of the racist history that we've had from native African-American and Hispanic perspectives. It it was phenomenal. Mm. And he kind of led and guided that whole experience. So, uh, so that was good. Um, Gosh, the the best methodology I think is really relationships. And that was the hope of the church. So the hope of the church is that if we sit down and we listen to one another and get to know each other, that maybe that'll win the day. Uh, So I'll give you one positive example, David, (laughs) and it has nothing to do with any books or any formulas or any programs. But it's about relationships. So the guy who was a Trump supporter who was in the army, um, is, and he's uh, Hispanic, El Salvadorian descent. But he was adopted when he was very young. So he basically grew up white in Connecticut. Big Trump supporter, big law and order supporter. Just everything on his Facebook was so opposite of what most of us were putting on Facebook. But he's a good friend of mine. And he has another friend who's uh, more progressive and liberal. And I remember we just would sit down in the summer outside at his house, you know, around the grill, and we would just talk. We would just talk for hours. And I began to see shifts in his thinking, you know, as he listened to two people that he loved and respected, and he knew that he was also loved and respected, you know, you know that we honored him for his service to our country, that, that we understood where he was coming from or tried to understand. And, and, and that was a real story of hope. And, and, of course, when Trump disrespected the military – I don't know how unintelligent you can be to make the number of mistakes that Trump made. But when you start insulting the military and veterans and, you know, I mean, that also helped (laughs) in my friends, you know, beginning to wean himself, you know, from the lies and the misinformation that were being presented. Yeah. For those who don't know, Trump had said that those who died in combat were suckers and losers. Like, so ridiculous. And, And that did not sit well. That did not sit well with a lot of people I know, both current and ex-military, who had been pretty strong Trump supporters. That did not sit well, and that moved the needle for some of them. Mm, Yeah. So it seems like talking about your efforts to help move the church forward and, um, you know, making, trying to make those deeper connections with fellow pastors, fellow white pastors, and you've seen, you've experienced the pushback yourself. I've felt this as well feels like a, a task of Sisyphus to trying to move church leadership forward into an obvious gospel-centered path of equality and justice. Do you ever get exhausted from all of that? And, and how do you maintain your energy to keep up the, the fight? That, that's a great question. And um, I, I want to be very clear as I'm processing this. Um, I mean, I do. I do get exhausted because it drains your energy to feel like you're fighting for something. Even when you're not fighting for yourself, you're fight, you feel like you're fighting on behalf of other people that need to be heard, but you get, you get frustrated. You get the natural frustrations. But I want to be clear from the many close friends that I have, it's not the exhaustion that people of color carry every single day of their lives in this country. I would not even want to compare it to the exhaustion that my black friends feel that they felt every day of their life. So it's on their behalf that I just think, you know, why is it so hard? 
for you if you follow the way of Christ, which is self-sacrifice, which is laying down your life for someone else? Why is it so hard to admit that you're a recipient of white privilege, that we live in a racist country, that there are sins of the past that we need to uh, account for and atone for and make retributions and restitution for? Why is that so difficult as a follower of Christ? And um and clearly, and I know you guys have talked about this as well, it's when it's when you conflate patriotism, you know, with Christianity or with your theological beliefs, it's when you equate a certain political system, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of ways in which which that can affect and distort the very message of, of Jesus Christ. Um in fact, Jenny, shout out to you. I listened to that podcast about Christian nationalism, and you're like, the fact that they can even use the word Christian in any way, I, I really, yeah. I really related to that. I was like, yeah, 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 that's exactly right. And I think the riots at the Capitol kind of, you know, I was waiting. I've been waiting for four years for what the final straw would be for for Christians to just say Trump is not for us; he's against us. And never, and I, I don't know. I mean, maybe this came, you know, for people that are true Christians, but obviously there are a lot of people that aren't Christians. Uh, that feel that way as well. So, you know, taking care of yourself is very important. I've also learned to follow a lot of great voices, non-white voices um, on Instagram. That's kind of my social media of choice, that and Twitter. And I even hear them talking to their communities and their pastors about taking care of yourself and resting and the importance of that. And so for me, that's become important as well. Um, not just for myself, but but for my colleagues, for my close friends. Hey, we we have to rest. We have to take our own Sabbath. We have to take care of our souls. We have to take a break. You know, we're not the ones who are going to complete this work in any way, shape, or form. We need to rest in Christ. We need to rest in who we are. We need to let God heal and repair what needs to be repaired. So, so that that's definitely important. Um, prayer life becomes important because you know that's where where the divine reflects back to you what who you truly are and what your true heart is. And if the only mirrors that I'm looking at or my social media feed, or even my conversations with friends for text or email. If those are the only mirrors that I have for my own identity, then then I'm not going to be healthy. You know, I need the mirror of Christ and time alone with God to really see who I am and who God is and, and to know my identity and worth in Him and my purpose in Him. And I kind of believe that's important for everybody. And, and I'm sure you guys know what's common in all church traditions is that pastors are told to be workaholics. I, I've seen pastors of every culture, every background, yep. every church mm-hmm. that are expected to work their you-know-what's-off and to always have the right answer and a smile on their face and never make a mistake. And it's quite literally impossible. It's like the author Elizabeth Gilbert said, it's like trying to swallow the sun. It, you, you just can't be the pastor that most churches expect their pastor to be. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think prayer is definitely very important. When I realized when I've kind of retreated from my talking to some people who are, I guess, Trump evangelicals, I guess you could call it. But I realized when in talking with them, I was kind of going up against their family upbringing in a sense. And like one per, you know, just their family, their community. It's like everything they got from their parents, what they got from their pastors, what they got from everyone that you're supposed to get formative information from. And so it's the whole idea of kind of having a new family. Is that something that you've seen as well? or Definitely. In fact, if you guys have not read this book, The Brown Church, have you heard of that book? I have not. You guys need to get The Brown Church. Um, I don't have the author off the top of my head, but he teaches Chicano studies at UCLA. 
Robert Chow Romero. It's Robert Chow Romero. Fantastic. Especially you guys seem like scholars to me. I, I could be assuming. I don't know. Well, I love the way – I know Jenny is. I love the way he digs into the history, <laughs> the history of the Chicano, Latina, I mean 500 years of it, of their experience uh, going back to the Spanish conquest. Uh, the church, it's just beautiful. So what he discovered was Chicano studies arose in the 60s, 70s as a way for Americans to say, we have our own identity. You know, you want to call us these names. Um, but even to say someone is Spanish, you're, you're using a system that came into place so that even in their culture, if you're lighter skinned, you're higher level because you're more like Spain. So even that reinforces. So they needed a name to identify with. And the Chicano movement became this kind of protest movement of the 60s and 70s. And in scholarly research, the Chicano Chicana studies became a, a discipline. So the opening part of his book is that a story of how so many Hispanic youth to your point, David, are disconnected because of that very reason. So they, they leave their family, their culture, right? They come to the university. And on one hand, the Chicano studies has completely rejected the church and Christianity as a tool of the European colonizer. So Chicano studies says you need to reject all forms of Catholicism and Protestantism. Well, you know that most of the kids coming to those studies grow up in families that are either very Catholic or, or very Pentecostal Protestant is the primary. So that they feel this great anguish and angst because, you know, they don't want to leave their family, but they want to study. They want to study the history of what's happened to the native peoples all throughout the Americas. You know, I mean, they want to do that work, but they're being told by the people doing that work, you need to reject and leave behind your faith. And they're being told at home by their Christian parents don't go into those liberal studies. Don't go into those progressive studies. You know, that's all godless. Don't do that. So they find themselves in, in this space where, where they don't have a home. So if you want to be progressive and fight for the rights of our people, then you need to leave not only your religion, but you need to leave your, your, your family behind. Um, mm -hmm. There's a movement in Latina culture called the Abuelita Theology, which is most of our theology comes from our grandmother. You know, and, and so that speaks to the relational nature of it, you know. It's like not just leaving church XYZ that I grew up in. It's like you're asking me to leave my grandmother's theology? You're asking me mm -hmm. to leave my grandmother in order to study about the history of racism, oppression, colonialism, the treatment of, of migrant workers, the stealing of our land? it becomes almost impossible to do. So the author of this book is making the first attempt to show the spiritual history of the the progressive nature of uh, Latino and Latina theology, that even the protest movements and what we're seeing today, they do have a connection uh, to the church, both Catholic and Protestant. So I, I really appreciate the work that he's doing. And it was just written last year, very current, very, very relevant. So gosh, can I be real for a minute? No, no, I'm joking. Yes. <laughs> we were taught to say in the church, you know, you, well, you have a new family now. This is the new family of God. You know, just to me, it's almost a theological equivalent of us saying that you should be colorblind. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And now we know that being colorblind is, is not the goal, but to see all the colors, the idea is not to be without any culture at all, you know, and just completely be this Christian. And again, that Christian is defined by the dominant culture in that particular church. Right. But to truly be the kingdom of God means that we see all of the diversity, that we still see our culture being influenced by Christ. Yes, we do have a new identity. We do have a new citizenship, right? 
I don't, I don't, I don't got time to get into all this. Mm-hmm. You guys give me ideas for some writing projects. <laughs> the citizenship <laughs> issue to me is a political allegiance issue. You know, it's not a cultural mm-hmm. issue. That doesn't mean that we erase the cultures that we grow up in. So to say mm-hmm. I am a, I have a new citizenship, you know, that I'm a stranger and a foreigner in this world is more about political allegiances, I believe, than it is about cultural identity. Because I believe that in mm-hmm. Christ we can retain a lot of our cultural identity because it's the diversity that God's created and at the same time embrace this new humanity that God is doing. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I need to tease that out some more. But maybe that works as a comparison that it's not about being colorblind, but it's more about seeing all of the colors in the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's so great. As far as you're saying a political allegiance, what, how do you mean that, I guess? What, what I mean is that for me, the teaching of the gospel on political allegiance is that your, your highest allegiance is to Jesus Christ and to God and to, and to his kingdom, and that your allegiances to earthly governments are secondary and that you should not conflate the two. And I think that's exactly, we see one example of how that's been done. And, and we aren't the only example, and we aren't the only example throughout history of, of reaching this point. I have a feeling the people in other countries are probably looking at us going like, you know, yeah, hold my beer. We've had a lot of protests. We've had a lot of revolutions. We've had a lot of insurrections, you know. It's like, okay, America, now you're getting to see how some of the rest of us have lived, you know. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean particularly about citizenship in heaven. I I think that – and the message was given to people that were primarily citizens of other countries that have been conquered by the Roman Empire. So it's a freeing message to say your citizenship is not in the Roman Empire, but your citizenship is now in the kingdom of God meaning that you have a place in this world that's not going to be dependent upon the whims and the winds of, a, of an empire, so to speak. And so, um, again, that's only the first answer, David. I know there's a lot of questions after that because you really have to unpack what does that mean then. But how do you be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and a citizen of the United States of America? To be honest with you, I think it's more difficult right now than it's ever been that I can imagine. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing all that. I appreciate your words, Phil, because it gives me, it motivates me to give more grace to people, realizing that when we're upset with people who cling to these um, traditional ways, to these ways that we know are against what God wants, you know, we're not just trying to change an opinion, right? We're trying to change their entire understanding, like I said, their grandmother theology. And so we need to extend grace for that. That's not a one conversation process. Hmm. That's I, Scott, I appreciate you saying that too, because I have struggled. I have struggled with having grace towards white people <laughs> over the last year. And, and that is a good word because here's another thing to think about. When you've been brought up on a version of American history that is largely mm-hmm. myth, so you've been brought up on a lie, it's almost like being told the people that raised you are not really your parents. And you're like, what? You know, I mean, imagine how disconcerting that would be to be told these are not really your parents. You know, your real parents are these people. And, these. you know, I mean, you would be totally disoriented for a while, right? The truth will set you free, but the truth will first make you uncomfortable. Mm, Definitely. Yeah, I think it is a good question for us about how we can be first citizens of heaven, then the U.S. I think it does depend on a lot of our social locations. Like, because people have different responsibilities, just like even in First Corinthians twelve, is different parts of the body are. And and we saw it twisted, right? We saw it twisted by some who said, "Well, my allegiance to Christ is higher than my allegiance to America, so I'm going to storm the Capitol and I'm going to, 
you know, rebel. Right. And I, I mean, we obviously saw a very dangerous, you know, application of that. So it's going to require a lot of really good thought and prayer, a lot of deep prayer to really understand, you know, how we can truly honor Christ, you know, and still be a, a citizen of a particular country. Yeah, I think for more for I guess black people, I think I've, what I've seen is for us, for the few of us who have been involved in the multicultural, I think I think it is about in a sense reconnecting with black churches, similar to what you're saying with the um, with the Brown Church book and other people studying. Some people have gone to multicultural movements and kind of looked down part of the black church because it wasn't doing those things. And then so as black people have left a lot of multicultural spaces since uh, 2016, reassessing a lot of things that maybe people overlooked from the, the black church. I think Christians should be reaching out, but I think also as far as black Christians not having a, I don't know, Superman mentality of thinking that it's on us to do something that maybe others should do as far as persuasion or things like that. Right. And I hear that. And I hear that you're not alone in that. I mean, I hear that from from people all over up here, too. In fact, my question would be, are you seeing some of what we're seeing up here and what I'm talking to other pastors about, that black people that have been in multicultural churches, and, and largely because of Trump, are leaving and going back to the historical black church because they're just worn out. You know, they're worn out and they do feel like, why is it all on me, you know, to teach you all things that, that you should have been learning yourselves? Do you see that? Do you see people like weary of multicultural churches who are involved and, and longing to go back to, to something from their family? Well, I mean, that's your girlfriend's story, David. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely is my girlfriend's story. Tamara, who's been on our podcast before. It's many things, but they didn't. They suddenly found it to pray for people when it was the Dallas shooting because a police officer was shot or something like that, but not others. You know, it was Obama voters, but it's just... It's the slow burn of multiple things. So I've seen, yeah, that has happened a lot. That's the framework I want to give this, this part of our conversation to. Like mm -hmm. a lot of these folks, um, especially these uh, black Christians, attended these churches believing that it was a multicultural community, being told so by the church leaders. And then after the fallout of Trump's election and, and all the divisiveness over the past couple of years, Minority Christians have realized, like, okay, this this was a bait and switch. <laughs> this is not this is not a multicultural church. The way that I've heard it described is that this is a church with multicolored attendance, but it is a white church based on white culture. It's a monocultural, multi-ethnic church. Right. Or as I've heard it said, if if you have yeah. a multicultural church that doesn't speak out against white privilege, white supremacy, and racism, then you just have a white church. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I see this all the time, like uh, where I live. There's a lot of churches to this day that want to be trendy. They claim to be multicultural. But it's very obvious that it's being led by a monoculture. And there is a world of difference between, you know, what I would call a phony multicultural church and a genuine multicultural church. And we need to give Christians the skills to be able to delineate that better so that these traumatic experiences don't happen again. Right. That's a good word, Scott. That's a really good word. In fact, what I'm trying to discern right now is, um, you know, what is my role as a white pastor? Most people that have truly multicultural churches, um, to your point, are not white pastors. And so I, I sometimes find that there's not a lot of people trying to do exactly what I'm trying to do, 
because it ends up being what you've described, which is to me not really what we're about. So there's a real discernment among us who are kind of in this in-between area as white pastors. Do we continue to work in multicultural settings? And if we do, you know, how do we continually try to make it something that's healthy and really worthwhile, which is listening and elevating, you know, voices of leadership? Or Mm -hmm. is there a calling to go back to the white church and prophetically speak to white people? You know, which doesn't sound very fun to me, but (laughs) people have told me, many, many, many friends who are not white in ministry or not have told me, you need to say that to white people. And so I'm really in this moment, to be honest with you, just trying to discern in the future, where's God going to best use me? Where does God want me to be to continue to be in this multicultural context? Or do I need to shift more of my audience to um, these people that need to have an awakening? They need to be healed of their blindness. I, I preached a sermon on that this summer called Blinded by Whiteness. And I decided just to share my own story of coming to realize these issues of being blind to it when I was younger. And it was somebody who left our church a long time ago, but I got one of the nastiest messages I've ever received about how I was compromising the gospel by talking about this issue. Wow. And, you know, I mean, yeah, it was really tough. The white gospel. <laughs> compromising the white gospel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, well, you're right. I should have said that. You said, I said, you're right. I am compromising the false gospel. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> the thing that's kept me going is that we have um, the demographics of our church is that we are 45% white. And then we're about, um, we have about two thirds more Hispanic than we have African American. So that's the rest of the 55%. I forget the numbers. So even though it's the smallest segment in our church, I do hear African American congregants thank me when I speak about issues of racism and the doctrine of discovery and white privilege. And so that gives me hope, you know, that I know that someone came to church. Maybe they don't feel like they're, they're in the majority, but. They felt like they heard a word that they appreciated, and, and that, that keeps me encouraged. But in, in the future, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. We had one of our best prophetic black preachers recently leave our denomination uh, to go take a job at his home church. So there was that angle to it. But those of us who know him personally know that he was really frustrated with our denomination. And we lost one of our best prophetic voices because he needed to, to leave our, our movement and go back to, to the African-American church. Yeah, I'm going to pick up on Scott's point again. Uh, We also need to have grace for ourselves. I think if you're going to do justice work, you need to have grace because we all want to do the right thing so badly that we become perfectionistic in our pursuits. And and perfectionism is really a form of self-hatred because you're never satisfied with yourself. Um, We need to learn to have grace with ourselves, that we do what we can do, but we can't do everything. Just be kind. We just need to be kind to ourselves in this work because... You know what? You're, we're going to need to take breaks. It's going to be trial and error, like you said. And we're going to have to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. And and we're going to have to, you know, make restitution. You know, we're, we're going to have to deal with it. I mean, the bigger mistake we make, the more we're going to have to do to try to, you know, bring it back together. It's not going to be a matter of just, you know, patting each other on the back and praying for each other. We're going to have to do work. But when you do hard work, what do you got to do? You got to get your rest. You got to eat right. You got to take care of yourself if you're going to be in the best shape possible to do your best work. So we got to have grace with ourselves too. And all of this is really, you know, straight from the teachings of the Bible too. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> it just reminds me of after Elijah outruns a horse to Jezreel and calls down fire from heaven and prays, 
after that, he's just so spent and so worn out from doing the work, as you were saying, that he prays, God, just take my life. I'm done. I'm done with this. And so the Lord sends him sleep, bread, and water. And for days, all he does is sleep, drink, and eat. This Elijah, this is a great prophet of the Old Testament. And then he goes on this journey, but he walks very slowly. He does something like, I think if you do the math, it's like five miles a day. Yeah, that's really good. I think that's just amazing about any justice movement is that the way to do it the best way is to follow Christ's teaching. They're always hand in hand, like working for justice. We're always going to do our best work when we're also living out the truth of the gospel. You know, not saying, oh, I'm powerless, I can't do anything, but also not saying, I'm all powerful, I can do everything. That's a great point. That, that's a sermon right there. I'm taking notes on this. I'm, I'm <laughs> that's a sermon, because I'm thinking about the next part. God doesn't speak to him in the fire or the wind or the earthquake, but God speaks to him in the, in the silence, the gentle whisper, a thin silence, some people translate it. And in work for mm -hmm. justice, you know, Elijah proclaimed the word of the God with fire from heaven, right? So it's in yeah. the fire, the earthquake, and the whirlwind, right? That doesn't that isn't that what social media feels like sometimes, especially when you're trying to engage in social media. Oh yeah, engage in these issues. It's the fire, the whirlwind, and the earthquake, right? And we do speak the word of God in those arenas. Elijah spoke the word of God through that, but the word of God didn't come to him except in the silence and in the stillness. And justice yeah. workers need to remember: yes, speak with fire, speak with passion engage in all of these ways with every ounce of strength you have but also let god speak to you in the silence and the stillness because that's where you receive the word then that later on you're able to go out and powerfully with fire proclaim that word you know amen i think that's a good wrap up actually if people wanted to hear more from you pastor phil like maybe if you like share any handles or websites or your church's website. Yeah, where are you calling down the fire? <laughs> I'm calling down the fire. Uh, all of our social media is Hartford City Church. So uh, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, our YouTube channel is probably the place where we have the most material that we've put out recently. Uh, so if you want to you know, check out some of the things that I've attempted to do to speak into these issues over this past year, uh, those messages would be on our YouTube channel. Uh, Hartford City Church. We try to keep it simple. Hartford City Church, Hartford City Church, Hartford City Church. <laughs> awesome. And friends, that's H-A-R-T-F-O-R-D. <laughs> that's right. I'm so Connecticut. I forgot. Well, thank you guys um, for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm really honored uh, to be able to just share my thoughts with you. And um, I love this format because you can process things as well, you know, while you're talking. It's not just about you know, producing content for people, but it's also a way to process. And hopefully, you know, your listeners are able to do that as well to process these issues. So yeah. I have been listening to your podcast. I love the conversational style of it. I, I love that you're all young, fresh voices, honest voices. I, I love it. I just think it's great. So um, I'll be promoting the Judson podcast as well, letting people know <laughs> to check out awesome. this great podcast. <laughs> And if you want to see where the Judson podcast is calling down the fire, you can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Judson Podcast or email us 
info at judsonpodcast.com. We're available wherever you get your podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. Let us know what you think. Let us know what your church experience has been like if you go to church, where you've seen these issues that we talked about today come up in your own life. And let us know any ideas you have for future topics. We always love to hear your feedback. And thank you so much, Phil, for being on the show. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. Well, awesome to see you again. Thank you again for the opportunity. Yeah.